This morning, I am going to begin a series on this little section that I just read to you, Galatians 5, 16 to 25. And eventually, we're going to get to what's typically called the fruit of the Spirit. But we're not actually going to get into the fruit of the Spirit specifically until after I'm back from vacation in September. I have three Sundays before my vacation starts in which I'm going to try to set up a study of the specific fruits of the Spirit. Or fruit of the Spirit, that will become clear as I make my way through it. Singular, fruit. I have three Sundays before my vacation starts in which I'm going to set up that more specific look at the, the specific fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, etc., etc. By looking at some important concepts this morning and for the next two Sundays, which are crucial to properly understanding what Paul is teaching us in this section, which we typically think of as... as the fruit of the Spirit section. This morning it is my aim to examine the meaning of the term the flesh in Galatians 5. And then to examine what it means when it says in Galatians 5.24 that those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So let's begin with an overview of interpretive possibilities for the phrase, the flesh. There are various ways that the term the flesh is used in Scripture. Various ways in which the phrase is to be interpreted. Which one applies here? That's what I mean by interpretive possibilities. Let's consider the options. First, it is possible, based on other uses of the phrase in Scripture, that the flesh basically means human effort or ability. That's how it's used, for example, in 2 Chronicles 32 and verse 8, where Sennacherib is invading Judah. Sennacherib and his army from Assyria is invading Judah. And Hezekiah strengthens his people on this occasion, saying this, With him, that is with Sennacherib, is an arm of flesh. But with us is the Lord, our God, to help us and to fight our battles. Or in Jeremiah 17 and verse 5, where God says, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. The sense of the phrase, the flesh, therefore, in these aforementioned passages, is something like human effort and ability. Right? With Sennacherib, yeah, sure. There's a mighty human army. Human ability. But with us is the Lord. Right? Cursed is the man who trusts in flesh, human effort and ability, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. Cursed is the one who makes human effort and ability his strength. That's a possibility then. That maybe that's what Paul means in Galatians 5, but let's try it on for size. Could that be what Paul means by the flesh in Galatians 5? The answer is no. That would lead us to an absurd interpretation of Galatians 5.13, for example, which I didn't read for you um, in the uh, passage just before I prayed. 
But let me read it to you now. It says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Now, if Paul meant by the flesh, human effort or ability, then what he would be saying in Galatians 5.13 would be, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for human effort or ability, but through love serve one another. Now, that doesn't make sense because Paul is actually exhorting the Galatians in that very verse to put some effort into loving and serving one another. And after all, we know that effort and ability are not bad things. They're just not worthy of our ultimate confidence. As if we could get by without God, making human effort and ability our ultimate trust. Turning our hearts away from dependence on the Lord, as Jeremiah 17 and verse 5 warns against. So, Paul is not using the flesh in Galatians 5 to denote human effort or ability. Let's look at the second interpretive possibility then. It is possible, secondly, based on other uses of the phrase in Scripture, that the flesh means basically the body. For an example of this usage, consider 1 Timothy 3.16, in which Paul himself, the same writer, says that Jesus was manifested in the flesh. Or 1 John 4.2, where John says, Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So in these uses, in, in these uses and in uses like these, flesh simply means body. Now again, let's go back to Galatians 5 and try that on for size. Is that the way that Paul is using the phrase in Galatians 5? No. Otherwise, we would have to conclude that the body itself is a sinful thing. Since in Galatians 5, it is the flesh that necessarily produces sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, etc. And consequently then, if this is what the flesh produces, and then Jesus had the flesh, then Jesus would therefore be polluted and defiled simply by having one of these bad bodies, if that's what Paul is trying to set up in Galatians 5. And obviously this is an unacceptable theological conclusion. For Jesus was made like his brothers in every respect. According to Hebrews 2.17, including a body, according to Hebrews 10, a body you have prepared for me, Jesus says, and yet was without sin, as Hebrews 4.15 says. The body is not inherently sinful. In fact, for those of you who were uh, with us last Sunday evening, we looked at this at great length and saw that a body is actually part of who we are, an inexorable and inextricable part of who and what we are as humans. And we will be in a glorified, resurrected body in the new heavens and new earth with Jesus forever. So the body is not what Paul means when he says the flesh in Galatians 5. The last interpretive possibility is that the use of the phrase the flesh in Galatians 5 should be understood to mean something like this. The corrupt sinfulness of fallen human nature. 
It is used this way in several other, other places throughout Scripture. For example, Romans 8 and verse 8 says quite boldly, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Simple as that. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, again, if this meant the body, then even Jesus in his incarnation did not please God. Right? Because those who are in the flesh, if the flesh means the body, cannot please God. Right? And we know that the opposite is actually true, that Jesus is God's beloved Son in whom He is well pleased. So simply being in a body doesn't mean that you can't please God. So we know that the usage is different in Romans 8 and verse 8 from, from other passages of Scripture where the flesh does connote the body, right? So what I'm showing you is there's varying options for what the flesh means in the Bible, which one applies in Galatians 5. In Romans 8 and verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It means something like this. Those who are controlled by corrupt sinfulness of fallen human nature cannot please God. And does this way of understanding the phrase, does this interpretive possibility fit in Galatians 5? Yes, most definitely. This way of understanding the phrase has us hearing Paul saying something like this. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the corrupt sinfulness of fallen human nature. For the desires of the corrupt sinfulness of fallen human nature are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the desires of the corrupt sinfulness of fallen human nature. For these are opposed to one another. For the works of the corrupt sinfulness of fallen human nature are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, etc. You see how that fits. So this makes sense, right? This, that's how Paul is using the phrase in Galatians 5. That's crucial to understand. The flesh, sometimes in Scripture, means human effort or ability, but not in Galatians 5. The flesh, sometimes in Scripture, means the body, but not in Galatians 5. The flesh, sometimes in Scripture, means the corrupt sinfulness of fallen human nature. And yes, in Galatians 5, that's what it means. The corrupt sinfulness of fallen human nature. That's important for us to understand over the next number of weeks as we're in Galatians 5. What are we talking about when we hear the phrase, the flesh? Let's consider now what it means that, as, as it says in Galatians 5.24, that those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Alright, we're going to do, do some theological heavy lifting here this morning. I'm going to try to make it simple. As simple as I can. I hope I will succeed. To begin working toward understanding this statement in Galatians 5.24, let's read it again with our definition of the flesh substituted in for the phrase itself. Alright? Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the corrupt sinfulness of fallen human nature with its passions and desires. So the assertion of this verse is that the corrupt sinfulness of fallen human nature 
since that's what Paul means by the flesh in Galatians 5, has been, past tense, crucified. And yet, in this very passage, Galatians 5, Paul presents the corrupt sinfulness of fallen human nature as a present danger. So there's a problem here that we have to resolve. How is it that the corrupt sinfulness of fallen human nature presents us with a present danger if it is dead? How can a dead dog bite you? Romans 6 is really helpful to us in resolving this issue. In Romans 6, we have the same biblical author, Paul, exploring the same doctrinal theme. But he expands on it there in a way that is helpful to us in understanding his Holy Spirit-inspired doctrine of the crucifixion of the flesh. So turn to Romans 6 in your Bibles as we're going to be there for a few minutes. And let us know a few things and then borrow them from Romans 6 to use in Galatians 5 to help us make sense of this. First, notice that Paul says in Romans 6 and verse 6 almost exactly the same thing as he says in Galatians 5.24 given that the flesh in Galatians 5 is a way of making reference to the corrupt sinfulness of fallen human nature. In Romans 6 and verse 6, Paul says, Our old self was crucified with Jesus. And what is our old self? Well, it's the corrupt sinfulness of fallen human nature, right? So Romans 6, 6 and Galatians 5, 24 are near identical verses conceptually. The phrasing's a little bit different. The wording's a little bit different. But the assertion of both verses is that our old self, the flesh, that is, our, the corrupt sinfulness of our fallen human nature, has been, past tense, crucified. So this shows us that we're dealing with the same theme in Romans 6 as we're dealing with in Galatians 5. And Paul begins his discussion in Romans 6, if we back up to the beginning of the chapter... Paul begins his discussion of this theme in Romans 6 by explaining that when Jesus died, there is a sense in which we, believers in Him, died. There is a relationship between the death of Jesus and our own death. He says in Romans 6, 1, that we have died to sin. In Romans 6, 3, that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death. In Romans 6, 5, that we have been united with Him, that is Jesus, in a death like His. And of course, as I already read for you in Romans 6, 6, that our old self was crucified with Jesus. Now this raises a couple of questions. First, in what sense did we die when Jesus died? And the answer is not that we died biologically when Jesus died. 
Obviously. Because we're all here. We're in this room, we're walking around, we're living, we're breathing, we didn't die in that sense of biological death where now they need to have a funeral. Biological death is not what is in view. So in what sense did we die when Jesus died? Well, this passage tells us that our sin died in some sense when Jesus died. And that leads us to the second question raised by the teaching of Romans 6 concerning our death and the death of Christ, which is this. In what sense did our sin die when Jesus died? I mean, we still sin. So in what sense did our sin die when Jesus died? The third related question, what is the relationship of Jesus' death to the death of our sin? So this is what we're going to try to unpack now, okay? I hope you're following me so far. Give me a thumbs up if you're on track so far. All right, hang in there. Let's start by noting the obvious. We hadn't committed any sins by the time that Jesus had died because we didn't even exist when Jesus died so the transaction which occurred at the time of Jesus' death between between Jesus' death and our sin whatever transaction happened there between Jesus' death and our sin of necessity had to be a transaction in the mind of God. God considered our sin killed in some sense when Jesus died. Now let's consider what Paul says in Romans 6.11 which is that you, you must consider yourselves dead to sin. And alive to God in Christ Jesus. We we got another preacher in the room. (laughs) You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In other words, there must be a transaction in our minds as there was a transaction in God's mind concerning the death of Jesus. And the death of our sin. How does God then think of the relationship between Jesus' death and the death of our sin? It is important that we answer that question correctly so that we can think God's thoughts after Him and make sure that whatever considerations we have about Christ's death and the death of our sin are in line with the considerations that God has about Jesus' death and the death of our sin. And the Bible tells us that God considers us a new creation because of the death of Christ. As 2 Corinthians 5.17 puts it, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, Behold, the new has come. Our legal record has changed. And we are considered by God to be a new person. 
God thinks of us as one who is just. Not as somebody who is sinful. That's the very nature of justification. God pronounces a verdict of just over us. God sanctifies us, which is a word meaning set apart. And often when we think of sanctification, we think of growth in holiness. And that is one aspect of sanctification. But there's another aspect of sanctification, which is simply being set apart for a holy use. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, who are still a bunch of sinners in the process of being progressively sanctified. And he says to them, you were past tense. You were sanctified. In other words, you were set apart for a holy use. And so God considers us just. He has set us apart for a holy use. He has given us a new heart. He has given us even His own Spirit to dwell within us. God considers us a new creation. All of these are blessings and benefits of the work of Christ on our behalf. So, there was an old John, but there is now a new John. And here's the crucial aspect of this whole thing for our purposes today. God considers that when Jesus died, the old John died with him. Back to Romans 6, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with Him. Okay, so the old John was crucified with Christ. You can put your name in there, right? The old Akim, right? The old Jonathan was crucified with Him. This is the way God thinks of it. And back to Galatians 5 and verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the corrupt sinfulness of the fallen human nature with its passions and desires. Now, in that passage, who is doing the crucifying? It's us. Look at it. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the corrupt sinfulness of fallen human nature with its passions and desires. So God has re- God has considered us as or God considers us as being new creations with a new record that your old self died with Jesus and you are now a new person he's given you a new heart he's given you his spirit this is what God thinks about the relationship between Jesus death and the death of your old self alright we the very definition of what it means to be a Christian is thinking the same thing. Right? We own the fact that I have a share 
or we have a share in Christ's death. Look, I died. This is what the Bible says about me. The old John died, was crucified with him, as Romans 6 and verse 6 says. I am a new creation. John is a new creation because of what 2 Corinthians says, right? That I have a new heart, that I have the Holy Spirit, that I have a new record. Okay, so when I say those things about me, what I'm doing is I'm thinking God's thoughts after him and I'm agreeing with God about what God says about me also. Okay? So, in that sense, I am active in the crucifying of the old self. Because not only is, not only is God pronouncing that the old John is dead, but John is pronouncing that the old John is dead. Okay? So, our commitment to Jesus, then, to be baptized into Him, publicly identifying ourselves with Him, and committing ourselves to Him. Our commitment to Jesus, then, is a commitment to saying the same thing about ourselves that God says about us, and about the relationship of Jesus' death to the death of my sin. It's a declaration that the old John is dead. That that way of life is, is dead and gone. And I have been raised, I, I was crucified with Christ, and I have been raised to walk in newness of life. This is the way that God thinks of us, and this is the way that we Christians should think of ourselves. But here's the problem. Isn't this reality ignoring and naive? Isn't this idealistic and triumphalistic? After all, isn't this the very nature of the mistake that some Christians make who fail to acknowledge the depth of our remaining corruption even after coming to Christ? For example, those who claim that we can be entirely sanctified in this life. <laughs> You just think, this is so ignorant. This is, this is so naive. Don't you realize that you still have remaining corruption? No. Nope. The Bible says, the old has gone, the new has come. I am a new creation. You see what I mean? Isn't there a problem here? Isn't this a faulty way of thinking of and understanding ourselves? Well, again, let's look at how the Scripture talks about it so that we can think about it and talk about it the same way. On the one hand, Scripture tells me that when Jesus died, the old John died. But on the other hand, at the same time, the Scripture tells me that the old John still poses a real threat to me in the present day. It tells me that there is a real Danger that I, John, new John, will gratify the desires and the passions of old John. The scripture tells me in passages like Galatians 5 that it is a real and present danger that new John will act like old John. 
So according to Scripture, there is a very real sense in which you are new. And there is a very real sense in which you are new and your old self is dead. Legally. De jure. And the way that God considers it. That is true. But also according to Scripture, there is a very real sense in which in actuality, de facto, your sin is not dead and must be killed. What God is up to in your life and what you therefore should be up to in your life, what you should be doing in your life is making true in actuality what is true legally. Making what is true Making true de facto what is already true de jure. Imagine, by way of illustration, a legal decision which grants an inmate pardon. <clears throat> Legally, he is pardoned. But until he gets word of it and walks out of prison, he is still imprisoned. If a, if a decision is rendered in a courtroom far away and the man is sitting there in his cell behind bars on the edge of his bed he's still imprisoned even though that decision has been rendered in a courtroom far away therefore this guy this inmate has to work out what is true legally and walk in it and perhaps if we can push the metaphor a little bit further when he gets word of it and tries to leave he encounters some opposition from other inmates who don't believe him. Perhaps a prison guard or two who haven't got the memo. And so he has to appeal to the warden's office. And then the warden comes and confirms. And yeah, and whatever. And finally, he goes. He has work to do to actually get free. Even though he is already legally free. It's not a perfect analogy, but something like this is the way that the Bible talks about the death of our old self, the death of our sin. In God's consideration, we are new. Our record is new. We have received a pardon. Moreover, God has given us new hearts which have really changed us. You, if you are a Christian, you actually are very different than you used to be. Your, your most significant inward desires and affections really have changed. Your priorities really have been realigned. In a very real sense, you are new and the Holy Spirit is working in you and is bearing fruit, which we will come to. It is possible, moreover, now for you to actually not sin. In a particular instance. You are not a slave to sin anymore. So it is actually possible. In any given instance. For you by the spirit. To put to death the misdeeds of the flesh. Resist the devil. Such that he flees from you. Put on the armor of God. And having done all to stand. That is actually possible now. So there is a lot of newness. Already realized in your life. And there is most certainly a legal, judicial newness, which happens as a, as a consideration 
in God's mind with respect to Jesus died and the old John died with him and all the blessings of the covenant are being poured out upon John because he is set apart for my holy use and he is new and he is justified and he has my spirit and so forth. All of that is is very much true. And What I must do now, what you must do now, is bring that to completion and consummation. We need to work out in actuality, de facto, what is already true on paper, de jure. We need to live consistently with our commitment to thinking of our old selves as being dead and thinking of ourselves now as being new. When we embrace Jesus, we accept it, we acknowledge that our old self died with Him and that we have a new life in Him. This is what it means that we have, that we have crucified the flesh along with its passions and desires. We must constantly tell our old self then, when it rears its ugly head, no, you're dead to me. I killed you a long time ago. I want nothing more to do with you. I am a new creation, risen with Christ Jesus. When Jesus died, you died. The Bible is not so naive to tell us that we don't have remaining corruption. Nor am I telling you that you don't have remaining corruption. The Bible knows you do. God knows you do. You should know you do. But it tells us that we must battle against it and continually work to consider that aspect of ourselves a dead and gone aspect. Because we consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. This is the sort of thing that Paul pushes on the Roman believers in Romans 6 and the sort of thing that he pushes on the Galatian believers in Galatians 5. There must be a conscious consideration that because Jesus died, my old self is dead. I will not live that old life anymore. To do so would be inconsistent with what God says is most true about me, and it would be working against what God is up to in my life. Namely, making a reality, de facto, what is already true in His consideration, the jury. Instead of yielding then to the passions and desires of the flesh, we must remember, operate in the paradigm that our old self is dead, don't take advice from a dead person, right? Don't, don't live that way anymore. That's dead and gone. That's... And instead, we must yield to the Spirit's influence in our lives. More on this next week. But this is the sort of juxtaposition that Paul is setting up in Galatians 5 between flesh and spirit. You are not your old self anymore. If you truly belong to Christ. 
you are not your old self anymore if you truly belong to Christ. You committed to being dead to sin and alive to God in Christ and thereby crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This is the way God thinks of it. This is the way that you should think of it too. God has justified you, given you new desires and affections, and even His own spirit. You are therefore like a prisoner, somewhat like a prisoner, not a perfect analogy, but somewhat like a prisoner who has received a pardon. Get up and walk out of jail. Don't stay there. Don't linger. Don't wallow. Don't disbelieve. Get up and go. If I can give you one more analogy by way of illustration. More than one commentator that I read this week says that it might be helpful to think of your sin as already being nailed to the cross, but not dead yet. And so the, the man hanging on the cross has no real power has no real strength, right? If it's a tyrant king who opposed Rome, or sorry, a treasonous king who opposed Rome, he's not sitting on his throne anymore. You know, some, someone from up in Germania or something, right? And the Romans capture him and take him off his throne and nail him to the cross. He's not reigning anymore, right? But he's not quite dead yet, right? Something like that. There's this already, but not yet. There's this de jure, but de facto. This is the way the Bible talks about it. We, we, reckon, we reckon with, in one sense, this is true. And in another sense, this is true. The Bible talks about it in this nuanced way. So we're neither to be like, well, I'm just a sinner. I can't, I can't really walk in newness of life. You know, I don't, I mean, woe is me. Like, there's no, I, there's no real power at work in my life. You know, the Bible's like, no, like you're new. Right? You're pardoned. When Jesus died, the old you died. You have a new heart. You have the Holy Spirit. You're a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. But then on the other side of the spectrum of errors, some people are like, well, I don't even, I don't even struggle with sin anymore. I mean, I dealt with sin back in 1998. And it's like, well, the Bible's like, no, no, no. <laughs> Not so fast. Because gratifying the desires of the flesh is still a real and present danger. Right? So I hope, I hope I've been able to make it simple enough and clear enough to be helpful. And try to do some heavy lifting, some theological heavy lifting, which is hopefully helpful to you even today. But I hope that it will also set up, as we talk more next week about the spirit versus the flesh, that we understand what the flesh is. We understand what it means that it's been crucified, and yet how it is that if it's been crucified, it's still a present danger for the Galatian Christians, and so on and so forth. So consider that an introductory message to Galatians 5. And may I encourage you to embrace over the next few months as we work through this section of Galatians 5 to work really hard at your growth in Christ. Now, we're going to learn doctrine 
But if we merely learn doctrine and stay just as ungodly, I would endeavor to say that that is not a success. All right? So I would encourage you to, to, to think clearly, get a clearer doctrine of the flesh versus the spirit and sanctification and so on and forth as we do this. But embrace what the spirit is actually going to do in you. If we believe the Bible, then we believe not only that there is fruit of the spirit, but that the spirit is actually bearing fruit in those who belong to Christ. And so embrace at least for now, in principle, the concept that the Holy Spirit is going to, to bear fruit in you. And as we go through this process, try to think carefully about these things, but also embrace what God is doing in you morally and with respect to Christian maturity and conforming you to the image of Christ. What fruit might the Holy Spirit bear in us over the next number of months. Endeavor to learn about the battle between flesh and spirit and endeavor to be, become someone who walks by the spirit and in whom the fruit of the spirit is visibly growing. May God work that in us according to his... May God work in us both to will and to act according to that, his good pleasure.